This is the Daily Signal podcast for Friday, July 10th. I'm Virginia Allen. And I'm Kate Trinko. Today, our colleague Rachel Del Judas talks to Dr. Kevin Pham about coronavirus and what's next. Don't forget, if you're enjoying this podcast, please be sure to leave a review or a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. Now, on to our top news. So the Supreme Court gave New York a pathway to seeing President Trump's tax returns, but told Congress no. Both decisions were 7-2. Chief Justice John Roberts, Brett Kavanaugh, and Neil Gorsuch agreed New York prosecutors should be allowed to potentially look at Trump's tax returns. Since the earliest days of the Republic, every man has included the President of the United States. Beginning with Jefferson and carrying on through Clinton, presidents have uniformly testified or produced documents in criminal proceedings when called upon by federal courts. Chief Justice John Roberts wrote for NBC News. He added, we cannot conclude that absolute immunity is necessary or appropriate. Referring to the congressional case, Roberts wrote per Politico, without limits on its subpoena powers, Congress could exert an imperious control over the executive branch and aggrandize itself at the president's expense, just as the framers feared. Trump tweeted, The Supreme Court sends case back to lower court, arguments to continue. This is all a political prosecution. I won the Mueller witch hunt and others, and now I have to keep fighting in a politically corrupt New York. Not fair to this presidency. Or administration. A 5-4 decision from the Supreme Court on Thursday has ruled that about half of Oklahoma is an Indian reservation. The question at hand in the case was whether or not the land given to the Native American tribe, the Muskegee Creek Nation, before Oklahoma became a state, still belongs to the tribe. The court ruled in favor of the tribe, which means that the land falls under its legal jurisdiction. Justice Neil Gorsuch ruled with the more liberal justices in favor of the tribal nation, writing, Today, we are asked whether the land these treaties promised remains an Indian reservation for purposes of federal criminal law. Because Congress has not said otherwise, we hold the government to its word. The dissenting justices have raised concerns that the rule will create major problems for criminal prosecution in the eastern part of the state, which again now falls under the legal jurisdiction of tribal law. In his dissenting opinion, Chief Justice John Roberts wrote, The state's ability to prosecute serious crimes will be hobbled and decades of past convictions could well be thrown out. The decision today creates significant uncertainty for the state's continuing authority over any area that touches Indian affairs, ranging from zoning and taxation to family and environmental law. Attorney General William Barr addressed race and policing in a new interview. I do think it is a widespread phenomenon that African-American males in particular are treated with extra suspicion and maybe not given the benefit of the doubt, Barr told ABC in an interview that aired Wednesday. I think it is wrong if people are not respected appropriately and given their due, and I think it's something we have to address. Barr also said, before the George Floyd incident, 
I thought we were in a good place. And I think that this episode in Minneapolis showed that we still have some work to do in addressing the distrust that exists in the African-American community toward law enforcement. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi does not seem too concerned about the destruction of America's statues. During a press conference on Thursday, Pelosi was asked about the Baltimore statue of Christopher Columbus that was torn down and thrown into the harbor, and whether or not she thought it was the best way to remove the statue. Pelosi responded, per M101 News, people will do what they do. Take a listen. People will do what they do. It's a... It is, uh, I do think that from a safety standpoint, uh, it would be a good idea to uh, have it taken down if the community doesn't want it. I don't know that it has to be a commission, uh, but it just could be a, a community view. And sometimes it's something that's been there, that view has been there for a while. But let's just say, I always say to young people who come, to, children who come to the Capitol, when you look around, you see statues to people in, in Washington, monuments and the rest, who, uh, who we respect, Washington, Jefferson, Lincoln, you know, heroes. They would want us to be talking about the future, your future. So everything we do here is about you. It's not necessarily... Um, they would want it to be about looking forward, not looking back. Next up, we'll have Rachel's interview with Dr. Kevin Pham. I'm Amy Swearer. And I'm Giancarlo Canaparo. And if you want to understand what's happening at the Supreme Court, be sure to check out SCOTUS 101, a Heritage Foundation podcast. We take a look at the cases, the personalities, and the gossip at the highest court in the land. It's SCOTUS 101. I'm joined today on the Daily Signal podcast by Dr. Kevin Pham. He's a medical doctor who is a contributor at the Daily Signal and a former graduate fellow in health policy at the Heritage Foundation. Dr. Pham, it's great to have you on the Daily Signal podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Well, to start off uh, with the coronavirus pandemic, we're seeing very different things happen in the U.S. Some states are doing quite well, while others are struggling. What do you see is going on here? The number of cases in the country has started to not just rise, but it's starting to surge. And that is definitely concerning. It's something that we should pay pay attention to. It's not something that we can just laugh off or brush off as if it was nothing. Because the, even though the number of cases seems to be predominantly in the younger age groups now, a low risk does not mean no risk. So anybody who gets this virus, they may eventually get some of the more severe disease manifestations. And as we've seen, that can be pretty crippling. That having been said, we also need to consider that this is the lower risk group that seems to be uh, making up the bulk of these new cases. And so we have to temper our concern with the, uh, with the knowledge that people who are getting it now seem to be at more resilient to getting the more severe disease manifestations. They should be able to weather it a lot better. So it's sort of a mixed picture that we're looking at right now. Our control of the pandemic is breaking down right now just because of all these cases are coming up. However, our ability to withstand it, we're, we seem to be protecting the people who need to be protected more, and the people who are able to withstand it are the ones who are getting it. You know, there's some good news and bad news with this. I don't like that we're getting all these new cases, but it's not all bad news. 
Well, we've specifically seen rising cases um, in Florida, Arizona, Texas, and then even in California. Why do you think these states um, are having particular problems? There's a lot of reasons for, for this probably, but I think the biggest reason is that these are fairly populous states and these are states where people go outside for the summer and then they come back into the air-conditioned areas. So they go out and then they go into um, establishments all around. In those establishments, it's going to be air-conditioned. The, the air is recirculating. You're in close proximity with other people. And then you're going to take that, you go back home, and then you might infect someone else in your household. The fact that it's summer right now just makes it so that these hot these states that are pretty hot people are staying inside more often and it's a little bit harder to stay outdoors and away from other people you want to get out there you want to be with other people because of that they're sort of being a little complacent with regards to this ongoing pandemic and it is still going and that's sort of the gist of what's going on of course one of the things we can't really um we can't ignore is the fact that Memorial Day happened, and then right after that, George Floyd was killed by the police, and then all these protests started happening. These things kind of mixed in together, and, and it resulted in the month of June being just a completely abnormal month. It's not something that we normally see. And so all these people who are out on the streets protesting and marching, they are in close proximity. And even though it was outdoors, being that close to other people for that much time, it's going to spread the disease a lot faster than it would otherwise. And then other people, they're seeing that uh, public health officials were encouraging these protests. And, and so they're seeing that they never really meant it when they said that, you know, you have to stay indoors to protect people if they're encouraging people to get out of doors and start protesting. And so when they see this, they're saying, well, you know, if people can do that, then I'm just going to go to the bar. And the bars are, frankly, one of the worst places to go if you're trying to control disease. And, you know, that includes COVID-19, not just the other diseases you tend to find at bars. And so all of these things put together just created a, a a storm of new cases that we're seeing right now. So with these rising cases, are they mostly younger adults or people of all ages? It seems to be it's mostly with the younger adults. And that is that seems to be consistent for Florida, Texas, and California, um, <clears throat> and Arizona. The, the majority of these new cases are in the group that's um, probably between 20 and 40 years old. Uh, different states measure the the statistics differently. They break down the age groups differently, but predominantly it's under, let's just say under 50 years old. Whereas the proportion of hospitalizations continues to be in the people who are 55 or 65 and older. And so again, that tells me that we are spending a lot more time protecting the people who need to be protected. There's a lot of lessons learned. And so uh, people who are who are trying to avoid the disease, they are doing a pretty good job avoiding it. The people who are a little bit more resilient are getting too complacent and they're putting themselves in the path of the virus, which is not a good thing, obviously, but they are able, they are going to be able to better get out of this if they do catch the virus. Well, CBS had reported on Wednesday that in 22 states, hospitalizations are rising significantly. And what do you think are the different factors here while we're seeing this, as you mentioned, is it due to more just people getting complacent or are there other factors at play? I think the biggest issue, like the the common, the lowest common denominator is that people are getting complacent. They're going out to bars, they're going to gyms, they're packing into crowded areas. And, you know, we've seen pictures of packed bars in like Austin or in Los Angeles. You know, when you're in a bar, you're shouting orders at the bartender. You're very close to other people. No one's wearing a mask because you're trying to drink at the same time. And you're just spreading out all these aerosols and all these respiratory droplets in an area that's very tight. And that's sort of a microcosm for what's happening on a broader scale. 
we have done very well as a country in mitigating the spread of this disease. If you look at the curves, when we talk about flattening the curves, we didn't just flatten it, we sliced the top off of it since April. And that was really encouraging. And I think because of that, because we were doing so well, that Americans started thinking that we were, we were out of the woods, we, were, we had gotten off. But there's no free pass in this, and we're starting to deal with, I think what we're dealing with is in large part a, um, a bow wave of cases that didn't happen before are happening now. And so that's, that's kind of why we're getting this exponential curve right now. Essentially, I think that's what's happening. Well, the New York Times, they recently had a piece out this week saying that coronavirus has has infiltrated Sunday services, church meetings, and youth camps. More than 650 cases have been linked to reopen religious facilities. Do you think that this is a fair representation of what's happening? No, because 650 cases would be a lot if it's in one small city. But if we're talking about, or if we're talking about New York City, 650 cases is not very much when they when they were racking up several hundred a day at the peak of the the pandemic. In fact, uh, it may be up to several thousand a day at the peak of the pandemic in New York City. But this is not just New York City. This was 650 over the entire country, and that's a very small number considering we have. I forget what the the latest numbers is, but it's 650 is essentially statistically zero with regards to the number of cases in the country right now. That's not a very good representation of what Sunday church services are are responsible for because there are so many other things that are probably responsible for everything else. And so it doesn't really tell us much. And youth camps, I don't, you know, I didn't, I didn't see where they, they said that, but youth camps are full of, are attended by people of the lowest risk groups and are watched over by people of the slightly less low risk group. And so even if they do get coronavirus, or the, the COVID-19, then they are they're going to be they're most likely going to be fine going through this so even though even though there may be some spread and a lot of the a lot of the new evidence now shows that children are school age children are the least likely to even contract this virus much less spread it so even if you're getting cases that show up in these youth camps i think it's still safe to 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 open them up again it's it's a huge factor for families family planning during the, the summer family activities and stuff like that it's something that we can do relatively safely. Well, we've, what have we learned, uh, would you say, about the ways to treat coronavirus in the past few months as more data has come in, uh, as different people in the medical field, doctors, nurses, other caretakers study this disease? What would you say um, has been learned uh, in the past couple months? In the past couple months, the, the biggest thing that we have sort of changed our, the, our perspective and the paradigms on is the, when, when, this, when this first started spreading out of China, the initial report said avoid anti-inflammatory treatments and uh, ventilate patients aggressively and early. And what we found out is that is exactly the wrong thing to do. The, the thing that seems to be killing the younger people is um, the inflammatory pictures. When you get the, the, what's called the cytokine storm, the body starts dumping all of these signals into the body that that causes a, an enormous inflammatory response, and that's what's doing the damage. So it's not the direct action of the virus that we're that we're dealing with; it's the body's over response to the virus that seems to be doing all this damage. And if you avoid anti-inflammatory treatment for an inflammatory process, then you're not going to be treating what's actually doing the damage. And if you're if you're ventilating patients early just as they're beginning to develop this inflammatory response, then you're going to cause 
ventilating is not a very benign process. It is it exacerbates any kind of inflammatory response, and it creates its own inflammatory response. So what we were doing is not treating the thing that was doing the damage, and we were doubling down on what was causing the damage. And so you know it's, it's a really unfortunate situation, but probably a lot of the mortality early on was due to doctors ventilating the patients way too early and avoiding the anti-inflammatory. What we're what we're seeing now is that. If we're starting to see that process begin to happen, then it's best to treat them with what well, you know. I had I had written about Dr. Yadiger. He was using tocilizumab, which is a new which is a newer drug. But there's also the much older drug, dexamethasone, which has been in the news too. It's very cheap. It's a steroid. A lot of people have used it before. What steroids do is it just uh, blankets the inflammation and then uh, tones it down quite a bit. And so that's been having a, a huge impact on mortality. And I think that that knowledge has spread throughout the medical community. And that's really changed the way we treat this thing. Well, something that has been a point of contention uh, between a lot of different people is uh, mask mandates. Is it effective to wear a mask? What would you say as a doctor? Um, is mask wearing effective or not? Yes, it is. And there's a lot of people who are a lot of the people who are against mask wearing. They cite the idea that, they cite the fact that there's not a lot of um, direct evidence showing that wearing a mask prevents transmission of COVID-19. Well, that's because there's not a lot of research being done on it. It's it's a lot of clinical knowledge. We, you know, surgeons wear masks in the OR to prevent them spreading their respiratory droplets onto the patient. It's not about protecting yourself from virus. It's, it's, it's very counterintuitive the way masks work with regards to COVID-19. It doesn't protect the person wearing the mask. It protects everyone around the person wearing the mask. And so you're not trying to stop virus from coming in. You're trying to prevent viruses from going out. And then, you know, cloth masks don't stop everything. But what we're trying to do is slow down the spread of, you know, the respiratory spray in front of you. If you have nothing in front of your face, you can spray pretty far, pretty wide. But if you have some kind of mask covering, some kind of fabric covering, even if it doesn't stop everything, it's going to slow down that spread. So that six feet distance that we have in front of you, you know, it might reduce down to three feet or two feet or one feet it depends on you know what happens obviously if you sneeze inside of your mask you're going to shoot it a little bit further but regardless we're trying to slow it down we're trying to reduce the spread and spray and that's kind of the working mechanism of it now with regards to mandates i don't find that mandates are necessary because public health in america has taken quite a beating with regards to credibility and when you have a blanket mandate you're going to end up mandating people to wear masks when they're out for a walk or in their cars or something like that. And that's not helpful at all. It doesn't do anything. Masks are mostly effective. Again, if you're trying to prevent transmission from one person to the next person, it's going to be most effective when you're in close proximity to other people and you can't avoid close distances. So this is inside of a grocery store or you know, at a movie theater or something like that. If you're in tight proximity and you can't avoid that, then wearing a mask is going to be most effective. So with the increase of cases that we have been talking about, could this increase in the long run possibly be helpful for herd immunity long term? It might be helpful. If, um, if we assume that a vaccine will never come, then it would probably be, this would probably, this uh, new case, surge in new cases is going to accelerate the herd immunity. But we should not want people to get this disease. As I said, the risk might be low for younger people, but the, the risk is not zero for younger people a 1% risk of just hospitalization, that's still going to be a lot of people because we have a lot of people in this country. We have 330 million people in this country. 1% of that is quite a big number. So we should continue to try to prevent cases from happening. It would be much better to get a vaccine first. And there are several, There's, I think there's almost 100 trials right now. So 
it would be better for us to try to hold out for that than to actively try to spread this disease around because that's that's not helpful either. While many international countries claim to have largely gotten rid of COVID-19, or at least have it under pretty good control, does this show that the United States approach it wrong? And are there any lessons we could learn from other countries? In a lot of other countries, the virus has gotten much further as a proportion of their population than it has here. And we're starting to catch up to that with all these new cases. If there's anything to learn, I think... um, a lot of the European countries have begun to reopen things a little bit sooner, and uh, a lot of them are reopening their schools, which is something that we should absolutely do. I know the president talked about this recently. Schools are, you know, are full of school-aged children, obviously, who are at the lowest risk of getting it and of transmitting it, and we should be able to open schools up safely doing that. And once we do that, I think that'll help us mitigate the fear of this virus, which is something that's having a, a, a large detrimental effect on the country. I think we're, we're dealing with, um, you know, not, I'm, I don't want to call it a psychosis, but we're, we are dealing with, with this sort of uh, generalized fears, generalized anxiety that's spraying through the country, and that's not helpful either. So the one thing I think we can learn from the Europeans with regards to COVID-19 is to sort of take this, not in stride, but to take it with a holistic picture of the grander picture of what's going to happen, that at some point we're going to need to live with this thing. Well, as a follow-up, the European Union is saying that the U.S. can't visit because um, they're not sure that we have COVID under control, and they do. And should we be jealous of the EU, or are there problems with how they've handled it where maybe we have excelled? I don't think we should ever feel jealous of the European Union, but I think it's entirely appropriate for them to restrict travel from the United States. It is very clear that our, we are not controlling the spread of the disease right now. So if they're looking at us and seeing that we're having a huge number of new cases, I think it's appropriate for them to say that we shouldn't expect travel from the United States into the EU. I mean, if we sw- reverse the situations, if the EU was still in the situation back in April and March, then I think it would have been appropriate for us to restrict travel from there. I, I think that we, we did not restrict travel from Italy soon enough. I, if we had, we would have saved, I think, a lot of um, cases in along the East Coast. No, I think it's entirely appropriate for them to do so. And I think it's it's helpful in the long run, too, because if they, if they start dealing with outbreaks that come from here, those outbreaks over there is eventually going to come back to here if we got it under control. So, you know, pandemic control is a national issue it's a local issue and it's also an international issue like there's there's every single level is involved with this thing and um i think i think i think it's an entirely appropriate uh, response for the, on their end well as we wrap up do you have any predictions about what will happen in the next few months regarding how we handle covid 19. i think that the states that are slowing down the reopening halting the reopening process and rolling back some of the reopening process I think that's going to spread through more states in the country. But as that happens and the surge starts to taper off, then we'll start to relax these mitigation efforts again. And I think all of that is extremely appropriate. All of this is part of a robust reopening strategy that we've always had. There's always going to be the possibility that we'd have to roll something back. And the fact that um, these states are doing it and doing it in response to real world data that's happening right now, I think that's a, a that's a really good sign that shows us that we know what to do if things get bad. We know what to do if things start getting better. And I think late summer we'll start to reopen things again. What I'm what I'm worried about is come fall when when the second wave may or may not hit. It's going to be when people start going back into their their homes and staying inside. 
more, and that could increase the household spread of this disease. We might see another surge in cases. But again, because of lessons learned, we're protecting the people who need to be most protected. I think mask wearing is starting to get a little bit more purchase in the community. And as that happens, it'll sort of blunt any effect of a, of a second wave. I think um, we'll get out of this year, you know, looking a little worse for the wear, but uh, I think we'll be able to get out of 2020 okay. Dr. Kevin Pham, thank you so much for joining us today on the Daily Signal podcast. It's great to have you. Great to be here. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks for listening to the Daily Signal podcast. We do appreciate your patience while we record remotely. Please be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. And please leave us a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts to give us your feedback. Stay healthy, and we'll be back with you all on Monday. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is executive produced by Kate Trinko and Rachel Del Judas. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.